Hi everyone, this is Tiff from the Bible Matters podcast. On Friday, Leo and I will be talking to William Taylor, the senior pastor of St. Helens Bishopsgate, about a talk he gave on Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 30. It's a really great talk thinking about what it means for Jesus' kingdom to come. I loved thinking about what that means the kingdom work is for us today. Stay tuned to hear the talk here on the Bible Matters podcast. We really hope you enjoy it. The issue is timing and seeing, and the issue is the coming of the kingdom in this particular section of Luke's Gospel. And for the next two talks, that's this one and tomorrow morning first off, our subject is seeing the kingdom today. So the first talk was essentially essentially revision. The kingdom has come. We can be part of it. The kingdom will come. We won't miss it. The kingdom is coming. Are we ready? But what of today? What of the in-between time while we wait like the widow? What does the kingdom look like? And in a sense, you might say, will he find faith on the earth? What exactly is this faith? And what does it look like as it is expressed? So these six incidents that Luke records for us are absolutely key cameos, if you like, that show us how the kingdom of God comes into our midst. Remember verse 20, being asked by the Pharisees of chapter 17, when the kingdom of God will come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you in the midst of you in the personal work of jesus at the time and then this is what it looks like for the kingdom to be in the midst of us as we await his coming this seems to me could not be more important yeah we're part of the kingdom yeah the kingdom will come but what does it actually look like to be engaged in being part of the kingdom today of having the kingdom in the midst And this, I hope, will help achieve what Lyndon was suggesting, a kind of refocus, an adjustment of our our thinking about what we're about. Well, verse 9 begins with, he also, and then we have the famous parable of the the, the Pharisee and the tax collector. And like with the parable of the persistent widow, this parable also tells us why Jesus told it. So lots of things go on in parables, but we're not meant to take kind of a little symbolic meaning to this incident and that incident and that incident. We're meant to take it as a a parable, a story with a primary meaning. And here's the primary meaning to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. He told this parable. The Pharisee clearly trusts in himself that he is righteous. His posture, he stood by himself. Verse 11, couldn't be entirely insignificant that he stood on his own. 
But then you go on and look at his prayer, and his prayer is entirely about himself. So he addresses God, but everything is in the first person singular. Did you see that? I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortion is unjust, adulterers, or even like this to tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So he is totally preoccupied with himself. He's pleased with himself and self-satisfied. And from his isolated position of moral superiority, he peers down his long, self-righteous nose at everybody else, or even like this tax collector. His posture, his prayer, and his performance. I have little doubt that what he says about himself in verse 12 is is true, and it makes him highly religious. For you were only meant to fast once a year, but he fasts twice a week. And you were only meant to give tithes of certain key substances, but he says, I give tithes of all that I get. And I guess his contempt for the tax collector is particularly focused on the greed of the tax collector and on the religious rule-breaking inadequacy of the tax collector. Tax collectors weren't friendless. You know, sometimes people teach the Gospels, particularly in Luke's Gospel, as if the sinners and tax collectors were total social outcasts. That's not true. They had loads of friends. They were just irreligious. And money-making was the great skill of the tax collector, and his great skill was to bid for the contract of collecting the taxes from the Roman government and then, by extortion and force, to screw as much profit for himself by levying higher amounts than the tax was actually set at. He was allowed to set the tax, really, at whatever he wanted, as long as he gave a sufficient sum that he bid for to the Roman government. So the tax collector was the Wonga money lender who set the interest rates five times higher than whatever they are uh, to date. And the tax collector was the inscrupulous business person. The tax collector was, well, Sir Alan, perhaps. I watched the latest, I haven't watched, I didn't even dare tell Janet that when she was out on Thursday night, I watched The Apprentice. It's awful, isn't it? Anyway, the tax collector was ever kind of person. Maybe I'm looking down on my nose at Sir Alan at that point. Whoops. But that's the tax collector. That's the tax collector. And against the track record of the tax collector, it's not at all hard to see how the Pharisee had developed a Daily Mail-style attitude of finger-wagging moral high horsemanship. I guess there is something of the those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt in every one of us. And it's easy to make a congregation squirm, and uh, some preachers take a great joy in that. Um, but I think all of us have what Jesus calls the leaven of the Pharisees in us. There is something in all of us of the Pharisee. Did I say tax collector? I meant Pharisee. There's something of the Pharisee in all of us. And in a sense, the more kind of Christian we are, the more the danger is that the Pharisee can come out within us. I mean, the Pharisee comes out worst in me when I'm in motorway service stations or the airport uh, lounge or when I'm looking at the news feeds or... 
actually, when I'm looking at Christian leaders who refuse to stand in one way or another, it's a tremendous temptation to think of oneself more highly than one, one ought. Twitter, tabloids, it's everywhere. In fact, we're a profoundly pharisaical culture, aren't we? When you look at the judgmentalism that there is. Now, the contrast with the tax collector couldn't be clearer. So his self-appraisal, he stood a long way off. You know the geography of the temple, the nearer you got to the Holy of Holies, the more sacrosanct the area, he stood a long way off. His eyes are down through shame, standing far off, he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. He has this deep, deep sense of moral and spiritual failure. He beat his breast, his self-appraisal. And it is true that the closer you get to the Lord Jesus in reality, the more you become aware of your own sin. I think that can throw the new Christian, and sometimes the old, older Christian as well, the closer we get to the remember Peter, Lord, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Remember Isaiah, woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips. We are, the closer we get, the, the nearer we get to the Lord, the more we become aware of our own sin. His self-appraisal, his appeal. His appeal is fascinating. God be merciful, and the word merciful is the temple word. It means God make atonement. The only way to make atonement, as we've just been hearing from the jelly babies, is by blood sacrifice. And so God, please, and the Greek is, make atonement. Provide a sacrifice for my sins. God be merciful. I was chatting to Georgia Walker about 10 days ago, who's some... Um, coming to rejoin us this, uh, this autumn on the team. And he said, oh, what are you doing at the recess weekend? I said, I'm doing this. And looking at the flowers in the tax. And he said, oh, yes, it is a bloody request, isn't it? God, make atonement. He's a very good way of putting it. And then he says, God, make atonement for me. And he doesn't say a sinner. He says, the sinner. I don't know if you knew that. But he sees himself as the chief offender. So who was the tax collector? Well, he might be somebody on the sex offenders register or who had cheated on his wife, who had a carbon footprint would lead to the extinction of several species. A lawyer came to see me. He actually made it into the papers big time because in a moment of utter madness and awful um, failure, he, after having drunk far too much, um, he got involved with uh, somebody in his office and ended up being sued and thrown out of his, his, uh, his firm and then all over the newspapers as a major scandal of a top city lawyer in uh, M&A. Um, and he came to see me, wasn't a Christian, tears streaming down his face. I think that's, there's the tax collector. That his acceptance... His acceptance one is wonderful, isn't it? It's there at the bottom of that uh, parable. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Everyone who exalts himself will be humble. The one who humbles himself 
will be exalted. Well, here then is key stage one. This is the coming of the kingdom 101. This is primary school stuff, and I'm unashamed in taking us back there. To be justified is to be declared right by God. It is to have the judgment of the final day pronounced over me today. Just get that in your head because people challenge this today. To be justified is to have the judgment of the final day pronounced over me today. It is to be righteous, to be declared right before God. It is to have all the guilt and all fear of judgment removed completely. And uh, one young curate once put it like this at St. Helens, God sees you as perfect. That is to be justified. Notice, this man went down to his house justified. In other words, it's immediate. So that bloody request, God have mercy, gives immediate justification. You don't have to wait till the last day. And this is so totally counter-cultural and diametrically opposed to all religion. Did you watch the Muhammad Ali five-part documentary? No. Okay, let me tell you about it. Listen, at this one little place, Muhammad Ali was a very famous boxer. We all grew up thinking he was wonderful. There's one place he became a Muslim. Service to others is the rent you pay for your room in the afterlife. I have a tallying angel watching all through life counting good deeds against that. No, no, this man went home justified. Wesley gets it right. No condemnation now, I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne. It's not a wonderful thing. Bold I approach the eternal throne. No matter what I've done, this man went down to his house Justified. This is the very essence of the kingdom being in the midst of us today as sinners like the tax collector are declared right before God. So the kingdom comes as the far off are brought near. Second lesson on the kingdom in the midst, the kingdom comes as nobody's become somebody's. And I think the disciples' action there in verse 15 is completely understandable. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. Of course they did, because already in the gospel, Luke has stressed the size of the crowds and the significance of Jesus. He's already fed the 5,000. He's got vast crowds following him. He, his celebrity status leaves Harry Styles and Beyonce standing in the shadows. And the kids were nobodies. Because in the first century law, a child was actually just a possession. And in Roman culture, infanticide was not a crime. And it wasn't like our age, where little Esmeralda is the focus of every adult cooing, cuddling, and chortling over the little beast. I mean, sorry, the delightful, <laughs> the, delightful, the delightful little child. They were not sentimentalists. And the child had no rights, no rank, no position, no importance, no status, no standing. So you can completely understand the disciples. Well, you won't want to see that little child. Much more important people to speak to. And then Jesus called them to him, saying, and this you just need to look at closely, 
let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. Literally, he says, for all that such is the kingdom of God. In other words, the kingdom of God belongs to nobodies, those who come to Jesus. And verse 16, as I say, reads, uh, for all these is the kingdom. This kingdom of Jesus, then, is for those like the tax collector. You see, there is a progression in these six little cameos. As Jesus is unfolding, yeah, the kingdom is for those who pray this bloody request and who recognize that they're far off and come to Jesus for forgiveness. But the kingdom is those for those who are nobodies and recognize that they're nobodies. If we want to see the kingdom and to experience the kingdom now, it doesn't come with great signs and wonders. We won't say, oh, look, it's over there in Toronto or Kansas City or wherever it happens to be. It's radically countercultural. It just comes quietly as a person recognizes I'm a nobody. And Augustus' top lady, who for many years I thought was a woman, but actually the first name gives it away, Augustus, top lady, <laughs> just his surname. But how he got that surname, we're going to have to ask him, aren't we? How, how, anyway, let's get into that. In Rock of Ages, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Naked come to you for dress, helpless look for you for grace. As the far off brought near as nobodies are made into somebodies. And again, this is so radically countercultural because we think uh, we've got that theology of just deserts that, you know, I earn because I'm a somebody, because I've climbed up whatever ladder it happens to be, social, spiritual, material, then he must accept me. And Jesus says, no, the kingdom comes to nobodies. We're talking about children. When we're here at the summer school, I always go to children's tea just to remind me how awful it is. But <laughs> you don't have any children here, so you can't go and look, but it really is an awful thing, and thank the Lord we're past that. But, but, but actually it's worth just popping in because there you see the kingdom. Well, not the kingdom, but obviously you see there's the little child. Mouth open, mouth open, mouth open, food fed, food fed. You know, yes, I'll just receive it like a nobody. Here I am. That's how the kingdom comes. Actually, usually the food goes everywhere, doesn't it? There's, there's a ceremony that happens in the city. I don't know if you know this. Uh, way back when they didn't realize the sort of things we believed at St. Helens, the city dignitaries used to ask us to come and take part in these ceremonies. And um, I was chaplain to somebody or other in the city at one of these ceremonies um, back in the early 2000s. And it's called the Silent Ceremony. And it's where the Lord Mayor finishes his tenure at the end of his year. And it's a very moving ceremony, actually. It's done in complete silence. And the Lord Mayor has various badges of office, and they just get stripped off him in total silence, one by one. So everybody files in. There are people dressed in the most absurd clothes. It's, they're in some extraordinary Harry Potter sort of film set. But anyway, they're grown men doing all this sort of nonsense. And they set the, come in in complete silence, and then one item is stripped off, taken away. Another item is stripped off, taken away. Another item. That's how the kingdom comes, as we come to him as a nobody. Not because I'm somebody. Not because I'm a leader in Read, Mark, Learn, or 
Um, I've led in Sunday school or I take a part in the youth group or, you know, I've done such and such and, and, and run a dialogue event at IGG, not because I'm a slob leader or the rector of St. Helens or a successful law associate, because I'm a nobody and I come to him as such. And so I think you can see why it comes unseen. There's no razzmatazz. It's not to the big shots, just quietly. And again, it's not a bad thing, is it? It's just the gospel we're going to have this weekend. It's not a bad thing to take these two incidents and come back to the Lord. I am a nobody. Third, as the impossible is made possible. Now, I know there are numerous experts on the rich ruler. And when I was thinking, well, I think I might take this section for the, for the city weekend and the recess weekend, I thought, oh my goodness, I'm going to have to look at the rich ruler with all these Mark experts. I wonder. But anyway, this is Luke. It's probably different. So now we've cleared, we've cleared the ground a bit there. You will spot some differences, actually. Um, and I no doubt in my mind that Jesus had numbers of these sort of incidents that took place in his time. And whether this is the same incident as in Matthew and Mark, who knows? Um, we're going to move through it quite quickly because I want to make the main application at the end. But notice he calls Jesus good, Jesus good, and notice that Jesus corrects his theology. No one is good but God alone. That's a clue, isn't it? And then he starts to unpick the rich ruler's personal understanding and why he, and clearly the disciples, think he's a somebody. And so he picks, and why he does it in this order, I've no idea. Is it commandments 6, 8, 9, and 5, 7, 6, 8, 9, and then 5? Why that order? Well, I'm sure you all know. Come and tell me afterwards. But those five that he picks are all horizontal, aren't they? And you know that the Ten Commandments, the first four have to do with God and the second six to do with each other. And like the Pharisee of verse 12, I have little doubt that the rich ruler genuinely did think that he'd done what he says he's done in verse 21. All these I've kept from my youth. Why else would God have blessed him with such wealth? And verse 22 then pulls the rug from under his feet. And either Jesus takes the 10th commandment, you shall not cover, and use it to show that he's failed in the first four, or he simply uses the man's attachment to his worldly wealth to expose his failure in spiritual worship. So the first four, as you know, the 10 commandments are summed up, we shall love the Lord your God with all our heart, and so forth. Jesus says, follow me. And if this individual cannot follow Jesus, who is God, but would rather cling on to his money and wealth, therefore this individual is breaking not only the tenth commandment, you shall not covet, but also the first four, making money his God over against God. And once again, I don't think Jesus is suggesting from this parable that every single person should give away every single thing that they own, the first century people had houses, Prisca and Aquila had jobs. Jesus is not suggesting a kingdom of paupers who are dependent on the state or the church. He was not a socialist in that sense. Rather, that this individual 
uh, has made money his God and will not let it go in order to follow the true God. Now, when the disciples hear this, he, he hears this, he's very sad, and Jesus then explains how difficult it is for people with wealth to enter the kingdom of God, which is true. And he then gives the marvellous verse 25, which is meant to mean that it really is impossible. You would have come across these people who say, oh, well, there might have been a gate somewhere in Jerusalem called by the needle where you can get a camel through and, you know, all the rest of it. Now, the point is it's impossible because Jesus then goes on to say what is impossible is possible. So his point is that it is impossible. Even if, as I've said before, even if you put the camel in a liquidizer, you're not going to get it through the eye of a needle. And we had, I think I mentioned at the prayer supper the other evening, so I won't tell you again, the great moment of the pantomime camel in St. Helens, uh, which we needn't go into. You can ask me about it later, but it's one of the great highlights of the last 20 years. Doesn't sound very spiritual, does it? No, it's not. It's, it, it was fun. Anyway, it was, great. it was great fun. But here is the key, and I think it is the key, and in Luke's Gospel it's really very, very significant. It's there in verse 26 and 27. Then who can be saved? Remember, your faith has saved you. Well, who can be saved? If it's not the wealthy, who can be saved? If it's impossible somebody like this, who seems to have been, lived such a good life, but actually is bankrupt, who can be saved? And Jesus responds, what is impossible with men is possible with God. And that's such a key phrase because we've just seen that it is impossible. But then if you remember, right back in, Ma in Luke chapter 1 and verse 37, Mary said uh, to the angel, how can this be? And the angel replied, what is, uh, nothing is impossible for God. And then again, back in Genesis chapter 18, verse 14, when Sarah says, and laughs, and says, how can I possibly have a child? The angel responds to Sarah and says, is anything impossible for God? And in Jeremiah chapter 32, is anything too wonderful for God? And so the point that Jesus is making which is picked up both from the birth of Jesus and from the birth of Abraham, is that the whole of salvation is something that is impossible for man, but God is making it possible. The great salvation plan of God conceived as the God of the impossible made possible what is not possible, birthed as the God of the impossible brought Jesus to birth in a virgin birth, and then brought to fruition as people who could never enter the kingdom are brought into the kingdom as God brings the far-off nobodies into his kingdom. So this is a lesson. Back in the 1980s and early 90s, the idea of kind of expanding the Bible and seeing the Bible at books of the Bible, working together with books and authors of the books, having crafted their material to teach us particular lessons, was really quite new. We hadn't really experienced it before. The camps I went to used to take uh, Bible stories in the dormitory, Bible study, studies in the evening, and would do one study here and one study over there and one study over there and one study over there. And then Dick Lucas and one or two others started showing us that books of the Bible were written as books of the Bible. 
And we came across these, this little part of Luke's gospel without really understanding the second half of Luke's gospel. A few of us said this would make a great camp Bible study series. It's really got it all. It's got the revision in chapter 17. Then it's got, yes, he will come again. It's got eschatology there. And then he's got, how does the kingdom come? And you'll see that each of the incidents comes one after another, building, 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 building on how the kingdom comes today. And it's really very simple and basic. It's what they taught you in the youth group. And it comes as the nobody becomes a somebody. It comes as the far off are brought near, praying that request, have mercy on me, a sinner. It does not come through my human effort. Surely that's what the rich ruler teaches us. It comes as the God of the impossible makes possible what is impossible for man. And this is vital for us to remember, it seems to me. For ourselves, there are times in our Christian leadership where we will wonder whether we're really worthy of it, whether we can even do it. If it hasn't come to you already, it will come to you. And you can do it because you belong to the God of the impossible. And there will be times in your groups where you just despair of members of your group. So inconsistent, so obtuse, will God's kingdom ever kind of break into this person's life? Well, yes, the God of the impossible can do it. And just a word from the Lord can bring possibility. Don't give up. There's a guy I'm reading the Bible with at the moment, and he heard, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, at a camp 30 years ago. He drifted right away. He went to one summer camp. That's all he heard. He drifted right away. He went, joined the SAS, became a very successful soldier, um, did some very remarkable things. Turned up to work in a company next to St. Helens. Came to a remembrance service and then started to wake up. And when we started reading the Bible, I said to him, what is it that has... He said, I heard somewhere, he couldn't even remember where, this verse, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone comes to me and knocks, I, I will open and all the rest of it from, Gen, from Revelation 3, 20. And um, uh, he said, I heard that verse and it's been with me for the last 30 years and in the darkest times, that has kept me. You think that's extraordinary. Somebody comes for three weeks to your Bible study, the God of the impossible can make possible what seems impossible to you. So for our groups, for our outreach, nothing is impossible with God. For our church, the nobody really matters to the Lord. There is a sting in the tail, and I just wanted to glance at this, and then we'll go into our groups. Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. I wonder what you think is behind Peter's request. But look at us, Lord. We've left everything to follow you. And Jesus re responds, open your eyes to realize just how wealthy you are. And just from time to time, I think, in Christian leadership and Christian ministry, 
we can get, if I'm right in thinking that Peter has got this slight sense of, look at me, look at what I've done, look at what I've given up, look at, look at what it's cost me. There are times, I think, in Christian leadership where we can find this very ugly spirit of self-pity descending on us. And there's a little sting in the tail, isn't there, for Peter, as he is reminded, look, Peter, don't you realize you are far more wealthy than you could possibly imagine? You have mother, brother, wife, parent, and eternal life. Now, I think that might help us as we seek to resuscitate. Let me lead us in prayer. We come to you, our Father, as nobodies. We realize that on our own there is nothing we can bring, nothing we can do, and nothing we can give you. Uh, we thank you, our Father, that you brought us, even though we were far off, and you brought us near. And we praise you that you have made atonement for our sins, this death of the Lord Jesus on the cross for us. And guard us, we pray, from any sort of self-pity or um, sense of personal achievement. And I pray that you would, in your kindness, refresh our vision of what you do and what you can do and all that you've given us and the great wealth that we have. In Jesus' name, amen.